The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, the host of the Real Chemistry podcast and CMO of Real Chemistry. And today, uh, I'm going to tell you, I just recorded the session and you're going to, I think, be blown away by the conversation we interviewed, uh, this is uh, Jim Weiss, my sometimes co-host, uh, founder and chairman of Real Chemistry, a gentleman he met not too long ago named Chaz Bountra. Chaz is a uh, the pro-vice chancellor for innovation and professor of translational medicine at the University of Oxford, someplace that you all have heard about before. We're going to talk a lot about that today. And the director of the Center for Medicine Discovery in the Nuffield Department of Clinical Medicine. He's also an associate member of the Department of Pharmacology. And you want to talk about a, a guy that's lived, you know, some really interesting lives, brings a critically important way of thinking to the industry. We talk a little bit about the magic that happened during the pandemic in terms of vaccine creation in such a record time and how can we, you know, help turn that forward to better collaboration talked about collaboration among some of the leading universities across the country and the planet. And lastly, we talk about climate change and just how sort of important a topic this is, maybe transcending all topics just because from a health perspective, it's so impactful. So with that, I will get out of the way and let you listen to the brilliance of Chaz and what he brings to the table. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it just like we did. All right, so we're uh, fortunate, as I mentioned in the upfront today, to be joined by Chaz Bontra, and I've given his title, but um, I'm also joined by Jim Weiss, who you've probably gotten used to know, our founder and chairman and uh, my regular guest co-host here. Aaron's um, sidekick. Yes, my sidekick. I think it's the other way around, but um, Chaz, one of the things that we love to do with our guests is we like to start with a little bit of how did you get here, right? So you have an interesting background in the fact that you spent some time in the pharmaceutical industry. And as I mentioned in the upfront, you're now the pro vice chancellor for innovation at Oxford, which is a very well-known university. Uh, let's talk about your sort of past and how it's led you to the present. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, thanks, Jim. I mean, I was in Oxford in the mid 80s and um, I worked with some world superstars, Dennis Noble, Trevor Powell, Richard Vaughan Jones, etc. And I was doing cardiac electrophysiology, trying to understand what makes heart cells beat and you know how it's controlled by intracellular and extracellular ion changes and looking at the effects of class three antidysrhythmic drugs on these uh, cardiac cells. So we did work on uh, animal tissue. So guinea pig papillary tissue. We did work on sheep, Purkinje fibers, but we also did some work on isolated human myocytes. And that, that was, I have to say, three years of wonderful science. And I learned so much from these great people. But it, that was what really tickled my fancy around translational science. You know, I got more and more excited and interested in how do we discover new drugs for patients. And 
So that's when I left Oxford and I went to work for Glaxo. And I have to say, when I went to work at Glaxo in 1988, I was young, I was ambitious, I was arrogant, I thought I knew everything, I could do everything. But when I went to work in Glaxo, I learned so much. I learned how difficult discovering new medicines is. I learned how a lot of the animal assays that we use do not predict what happens in the clinic. I learned about how challenging it is to get molecules into the brain. I learned about how we've got to be better than you know, what's already out there. And I learned about all the commercial challenges and the regulatory challenges and everything else, et cetera. And again, in, in Glaxo, and in Glaxo then became Glaxo Welcome and then Glaxo Smith Klein. Again, I worked with some amazing mentors. I mean, two that particularly come to mind. One was a guy named Pat Humphrey. He discovered this class of drugs called the triptans for migraine, sumatriptan, narotriptan, et cetera. And another guy was a guy named Tashi Yamada. Uh, so Tashi Yamada uh, was head of R&D at GSK. Unfortunately, he died earlier on this year. I mean, he was one of my lifetime heroes, actually. I mean, sort of, he was just such a decent, such an incredibly hardworking man who was passionate about science and passionate about drug discovery and passionate about improving the lives of people on the planet, et cetera. But, you know, in my time at, in industry, I just learned so many technical skills, but I also learned so much about teamwork and leadership and management and thinking strategically and milestones and focus and all that sort of stuff. Some of the things that we tend not to do in academia. And then in 2008, I left GSK and I came back to Oxford. And what I realized in GSK, I mean, one of the first drugs I was involved in launching was a molecule called Lotronex, a Lozotron. This was for the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. And we launched it. And literally about nine months later, we had to pull it from the market because of a very low incidence of ischemic colitis. You know, you wouldn't pick it up in a phase three program. And then in, I think in 2002, Novartis had a drug also for irritable bowel syndrome, which they, again, it was on the market, it was making money, and they pulled it off the market because of a low incidence of a cardiovascular event. And then a couple of years later, of course, Merck, uh, they had a COX-2 inhibitor on the market. It was making a couple of billion a year. It was for the treatment of uh, pain associated with rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory pain, et cetera. And again, they pulled it from the market and we all know what happened. You know, in 30 minutes, I think they lost $30 billion of value. So this happened in 2000, 2002, 2004. And I thought to myself, my God, this game is just getting so difficult. You know, we are launching molecules. It's hard enough to launch a molecule, but once we've launched it, you know, they're being pulled from the market. And when you pull them, they can have such a negative impact on the value of the company. And, and of course, when you're working inside a company, it's very difficult to influence the regulators. And also, when you're working inside a company, I found it was very difficult to access lots of clinicians. It was also very difficult to access lots of patient resources. And it was quite expensive to access academic innovations. You know, most academics will not collaborate with somebody in industry unless they fund a student or a postdoc or whatever, et cetera. And so it was just slow. 
I was also increasingly worried that in industry, there was too much duplication. You know, all these big companies, Pfizer, Novartis, Lilly, GSK, et cetera, et cetera, many of them are working on the same diseases, the same commercial opportunities, and many of them are working on exactly the same ideas, the same targets, the same proteins. And that's not surprising because, of course, everybody goes to the same conferences, everybody talks to the same opinion leaders, everybody reads the same publications. So they work on the same ideas. But the tragedy is, of course, as we know, that in this game, many of the ideas that we work on in the lab do not make it to the market. And many of them fail in early clinical studies in phase one, phase two, either because of a lack of efficacy or for some safety issue, et cetera. So, of course, you imagine if there's 10 pharma companies doing exactly the same thing, if one of them fails, it's likely the other nine are going to fail as well. So I always felt that that was such an incredible waste of resource. And so when I came to Oxford, I decided I'm only going to work on completely novel ideas. So novel genes, novel proteins that industry is not working on, that other academics are not working on, that there are no publications on, et cetera, because I wanted to accelerate new biology. So what we did was we worked on novel genes, novel proteins. We purified them. We worked out their three-dimensional X-ray structures. We built assays. We generated novel inhibitors. We generated antibodies. But then we also said that all of these tools, we will make them freely available to the world. So we'll give them away to anybody in academia, anybody in biotech, and anybody in pharma. Because by doing this, what we were trying to do was we were trying to accelerate innovation. The consequence of this was, so this was an organization called the Structural Genomics Consortium. And so I headed that up from 2008 to about 2019 here in Oxford. And so in that period, we generated thousands of these tools. We made them freely available. These tools were all high quality. They were high quality because we were working with lots of great friends inside the pharmaceutical industry. And in fact, we were getting lots of funding from at one point, 10 large pharmaceutical companies to generate these freely available open tools for novel genes and proteins. We also got a lot of funding from the Wellcome Trust, probably over a period of a decade, got close to, well, more than 60 million pounds worth of funding from Wellcome and a similar amount from industry. So we had a lot of uh, industry funding and a lot of charitable funding, and we also leveraged a lot of government funding. So we generated these tools. These tools, of course, accelerated lots of academic science, lots of publications. They helped build lots of academic careers. They helped lots of our academic colleagues bring in lots of grants. But they also helped a lot of pharma companies because, of course, academics, they will take these novel tools, they will test them in their assays, they will produce lots of publications, then colleagues in pharma can look at those publications and decide whether or not they want to work on that target, et cetera. So it also helped the industry. But also some of my academic friends, they created new companies. So they created new enterprises, you know, on these with these new tools, they generated new biology and they created new companies. So it, this, this was just amazing. It was a way of crowdsourcing science. It was a way of helping proprietary programs in industry. It was a way of accelerating translational medicine, and it was a way of creating new enterprises, et cetera. So, 
So, and then in 2019, we decided in Oxford that we wanted to not just generate tools and make them freely available, we wanted to take some of these into the clinic. You know, we wanted to generate clinical molecules and we wanted to test them in patients. Now, of course, if you're going to take a molecule into the clinic and test it in patients, you need intellectual property. Now, the Structural Genomics Consortium did not want to do that. They didn't want to take out any intellectual property. And so we decided to pull out of the SGC. And so we've created here in Oxford a new institute called the Center for Medicine's Discovery. So in, in the Center for Medicine's Discovery, we're doing everything we used to do, but now we're working with lots of pharma companies and lots of governments and lots of venture capitalists to try and move some of our ideas into the clinic by generating clinical molecules, but we're also creating lots of companies. And those companies, of course, are also creating lots of IP as well. So it's a really exciting initiative and you know we're having such fun. We talked about Stanford and we talked about Harvard and, you know, MIT. So, the, you know, these places have been doing what you've been describing for quite a long time. Do you think what took Oxford so long? I mean, even your neighbor in Cambridge, I kind of wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, is there some rivalry there similar to, you know, Arsenal and Tottenham or Man United and, you know, Man City? Is 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 there a healthy tension and competition going on in the UK amongst those great scientific leaders, similar to what we have here, creating, you know, what has been, I think we all agree, a renaissance in not only life sciences and digital sciences and ML and AI and, and just an explosion of discovery. Um, is there almost too much for Oxford to execute? And what, what do you need to make it happen? Yeah, there's lots of great questions in there, Jim. We could carry on talking for a few days on that one. But yeah, um, you could. You know, it's, it's interesting, Jim, sort of, you know, in the pandemic, let me just share with you a story. So at the height of the pandemic, many colleagues from across the world, you know, in the US, in Australia, in China, they would contact me and they would say, why is Oxford on the news on a daily basis? Cambridge UK wasn't, Harvard wasn't, Stanford wasn't, MIT wasn't, etc. And it would have been very easy for me to say, Jim, that, oh, it's because we've got great people. Well, that can't be the reason because there are great people in these other institutions. It would have been easy for me to say it's because, oh, uh, we've got great resources. Well, actually, Harvard and Stanford have got more than we have, etc. So that's not the reason. What I think it is, Jim, is that I think people like John Bell, who's, you know, one of my superstar heroes, he and many other senior colleagues in the university over many decades have created here, I think, more of a culture of collaboration. There's a recognition that we've got some big problems facing us. And the only way we're going to crack these problems is by working together working together across disciplines, across departments, across divisions, working with industry, working with government, working with regulators, working with funders, and importantly, working with other countries. So in healthcare, everything you know we all worry about, dementia, aging, mental health, antimicrobial resistance, rare diseases, cancer, obesity, whatever, whatever, these are all global challenges and 
no one place, I believe, has got all the expertise and resources to do it. And we need to work together on these things, etc. And so, you know, what my colleagues saw happen in the past three years was, and I'm still stunned when I think about what happened. I mean, with the vaccine story, and this is down to the sort of genius of people like John Bell and our vice chancellor, Louise Richardson, uh, and of course, Andrew Pollard and Adrian Hill and Sarah Gill. But what these guys did was they, you know, you imagine, cast your mind back three years at the time of the pandemic. You know, in this country, we had, well, across the world, we had no vaccine, we had no treatment. You know, the streets were empty, the department stores were empty, the cinemas were empty. The only place that was full was the hospitals. And every day, hundreds of people would die. And, and so what my colleagues did was they pulled together colleagues from the UK government, they pulled together colleagues from UK regulators, a number of funders, but importantly, they pulled together colleagues from AstraZeneca. So Pascal Suaro, Mene Pangloss, et cetera. And they said, right, how can we work together to get the world out of this pandemic? You know, how can we create a new vaccine? We, we're not interested in making money. We just want to save the planet. And it is stunning to me that my colleagues in nine months created a vaccine, something that normally would have taken nine years. So for me, the big lesson from that experience is it's amazing what we can do when we come together and we have a single vision, a single goal. Everybody's pulling in the same direction. The other thing is, Jim, as you appreciate, in that scenario, frankly, money was not limiting. You know, we were getting money from the UK government. We were getting money from, um, you know, other funders. We were getting, obviously, AstraZeneca was putting a lot of money in. We were getting money from a lot of our alumni, et cetera, et cetera. Money was not limiting. So in that scenario, what we could do, we could, we could do things in parallel at risk. So as opposed to sequentially over nine years, we could do a lot of things in parallel. So going back to your question, Jim, you know, to be honest, in, in Oxford, I mean, the brand name is such, you know, the profile of the university is so high, the profile of the medical school is so high. You know, we've got amazing capabilities in engineering, in physics, in AI, in machine learning, in computational science, and in social sciences, humanities, we've got enormous strengths, et cetera. So, you know, frankly, I mean, I, I've been saying to our new VC, this wonderful lady who's starting in a few weeks' time, Irene Tracy, you know, one of my worries is how do we keep the profile of this university up there? And so I frankly worry about competition from Harvard and Stanford, because as you say, their endowments are much, much bigger than Oxford. I worry about competition from the Chinese universities because, you know, frankly, there the government is pouring billions of dollars into universities and some of those universities are shooting up the rankings, et cetera. But, you know, for me, the way Oxford stays up there, number one, number two, whatever it is, et cetera, et cetera, is we have to continue to recruit and retain global superstars. You know, I tend not to worry about money and I tend not to worry about, you know, Oxford is great not because we've got these eight, 900-year-old buildings, et cetera. It's great because we've got some amazing people. Right. It, it always comes back to people, doesn't it? You know, I say it a lot personally here at our firm and, you know, in, in the world, you know, you can do lots of different things, machines, data, tech, 
you know, but when it all comes down to it, why would somebody want to be in and around Oxford versus, you know, Stanford or Harvard? It's it's a hot topic today. Um, Aaron Judge, who was the great, you know, slugger uh, for the Yankees last year. Uh, again, this may not be important to people in in Oxford area, but um, for people in America, it's important. And He's staying with the Yankees. I guess, you know, there was a the San Francisco Giants where I'm from, you know, they were in a little bit of a battle and they got this great talent, um, paid a lot of money for it. It became really a money battle. And the question is, in the absence of money, and that's what you're saying, you stay up at night because is it that I need more money versus Chinese universities or anywhere else? Or is there something about Oxford that's special when I went and met you there, you know, we went to breakfast in the Harry Potter, like, you know, dining hall, you know, there's something incredibly different that you cannot get anywhere else in the world that you get at Oxford, three and 4,000 year old buildings and things like that. So I was just wondering, you know, how you talk about it when you're recruiting people. You know, it's a great question, Jim, you know, like you, I mean, I'm always on the lookout for the next Bill Gates or the Elon Musk or the Steve Jobs or even the Jeff Bezos, et cetera. You know, it's 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 these individuals who are visionaries, they're they're real innovators, they're they're disruptive, they're transformational in their thinking, they are entrepreneurs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They make things happen, they've created new industries, they've created trillion-dollar companies, they've created, they've changed the planet. They've created lots of millionaires and they've produced lots of billionaires. Those are the sort of people I'm always on the lookout for. Now, you're absolutely right. And you have some, right? So do those, absolutely. Like we, we had Steph Curry trying to help get Aaron Judge here to the Bay Area. So who do you leverage there? I'd love to hear some highlights. Well, I think, you know, what is maybe unique about Oxford I think the collegiate system is amazing because, you know, these colleges are five, six hundred people. You know, these kids, young kids from all disciplines, all subjects, you know, it's a mixture of medics and engineers and physicists and mathematicians and humanities people and legal people and social scientists and business people, et cetera, et cetera. They all study together. They all play together. They all live together. And they build these relationships at that very early age. I think that that is important for sort of innovation, interdisciplinary work, et cetera, et cetera. I think the other thing I would say is that Oxford is pretty small, you know, small. I mean, geographically, everything is very compact. And um, and I think that sort of critical mass, that density, I think that's also important, you know, sort of. We walk down the street and we see friends and we sit in the coffee bar or high street, etc. It's such a small town, as you know, sort of the diameter of Oxford is less than 10 miles. And that, so I think that's important. I would also say it's a nice place to live. But you're absolutely right that, you know, entrepreneurs, great leaders, great visionaries, great innovators, what they want is they want access to talent. OK, we've got that in Oxford. But what they also want is a nice place to live for their families. And I think we've got that in Oxford. But what they also want is lots of risk capital. Now, I think in Oxford, we're starting to get that. As you know, 
uh, Oxford Science Enter Innovation, as it was called seven years ago, they uh, they created a fund of 614 million pounds. And it was purely for Oxford faculty, not anybody else, Oxford faculty to translate their science, to commercialize it. Now, that was seven years ago. Uh, and just recently, they pulled in another 250 million. And then in 18 months time, they'll pull in another 250 million. But, you know, last year, we created 31 companies. That's more than any university in the country, right? Now, I'm not at all worried about just creating companies. What we now need to do is we need to scale them up. We need to make them 10 billion, 30 billion, 50 billion, 100 billion, eventually a trillion, et cetera, because that's when they really start to have an impact. That's when they really start to change the world. That's when they really start to create lots of jobs and so on and so forth. And by golly, the UK government needs the tax revenue at the moment. So I think that's that's what we're trying to do. And to do that, we need to do a number of things. And this is what I'm focused on at the moment in Oxford. I want to attract more investors into Oxford. I want to attract more scale-up entrepreneurs into Oxford, so people who can not just create companies but scale them up. We need to build a lot more innovation space. We don't have enough of it. We also need to build more links with global corporates, you know, because I'm not saying we want you know, Pfizer to relocate 3,000 people to Oxford. That's not going to happen. I'm not interested in that. But I think we need, you know, even sort of small offices of these companies, lots of diverse, it could be pharma companies, it could be digital companies, it could be AI companies, whatever it is, we need that diversity. The other thing I would say, Jim, and I think this is pretty important. I know Real Chemistry is talking about opening with Suzanne based there, you know, Jacobs, and that's how we've got. Well, that's that's one example where I think we'd have an output. Absolutely. That would be brilliant. I think the one thing, other thing I would say is that I was talking to some colleagues about this this morning. In Oxford now, we've got, obviously, we've got the university in this tiny town. We've now created 200 companies that are sitting on our sort of um, uh, periphery. Uh, We've got a number of science parks that are growing. 10 miles south of Oxford, we've got these major national infrastructures at Harwell and Cullum, uh, which are amazing national investments in big kit, et cetera. But this region, this ecosystem is... Uh, we've got amazing strengths in a number of areas, life sciences, in quantum, in fusion, in motorsports, in autonomous vehicles, in space, in satellite, in publishing. Now, I don't know if there is any other place on the planet that has got strengths in so many different clusters. And Like I said, Jim, I want Oxford to be the innovation hub of Europe. And my ambition is I want it to eventually be like Boston and Stanford, et cetera. So, Chaz, I have a question that I want to ask you because I was sort of back channeling with Jim saying you may be one of the smartest people we've ever talked to. And I don't say that lightly. I've had a lot of very smart people on the podcast. But I have an important question related to what you said earlier about the pandemic and the ability to have a single focus and pull together We obviously have a lot of problems or a lot of opportunity, I should say, in the industry. The pandemic allowed for that singular focus. How do we take, you know, maybe Oxford as that light and how do we start to unify? We were also talking about politics, like in our pre-conversation, and we've been a little stuck on probably a lot of different country fronts. Um, 
how do we move forward? How do we get the industry to codify and say, look, we know companies have to make money. We know that, you know, people have to follow certain regulators leads, but how can we break free of this and, and really sort of find a way forward uh, in a way that meaningfully changes, just like you've wanted to do using your role in the Innovation Center at, at Oxford? That's a really tough question, Aaron. I mean, I, I thought long and hard about, you know, I worry like you, like us, about all the healthcare challenges. You know, I worry about dementia and aging and mental health and cancer and diabetes and all that sort of stuff, AMR, rare diseases. But I tell you, I worry about the climate emergency even more. You know, those changes are irreversible and they are happening and we are not making fast enough progress in terms of green energy or carbon capture or increasing biodiversity or increasing clean water or food or whatever, et cetera. And then there's lots of other challenges globally. We've got, you know, increasing inequality, the impact of technology on society, geopolitics, et cetera, et cetera. I've thought long and hard about how can we create the same urgency across this university around the climate emergency? So how can I get all four corners of this university, all 39 colleges, day and night worrying about the climate emergency, just like we were doing in the pandemic? That is very hard to recreate. But I, I've also come to the conclusion, Aaron, that you know, the problem is, you know, each time there's a COP meeting, I'm always hopeful, but I'm always disappointed afterwards. And I think the challenge we've got is if government tries to do something, the problem is half the country doesn't trust government. Governments tend to think in terms of a very national agenda. They tend to think in terms of three, four-year timescales, etc. But I do believe that if an academic institution like Oxford does something, well, I think most people trust Oxford academics and academics and clinicians in general. Uh, academics tend to think of a much longer time agenda. It's the next 40, 50, 100 years. They tend to think of international, not national. They're thinking global. But importantly, in this great university of ours, we've got expertise in all the technologies and so on and so forth that we need. And we've also got, you know, many of our alumni are dotted all over the world Many of them are incredibly successful. They are keen to help us. We've got networks with governments and industries and regulators, et cetera. If we turn our mind to anything, we could do it. But uh, how I do that, Aaron, or how we do that, uh, I wish you would give me the answer because I've struggled with it. Well, is there collaboration you're exploring when you mentioned Cambridge, MIT? Could there be a group of you that come together and share I saw the conference centers at Oxford, you know, could Oxford be the convener of these great minds and great institutions to come and bring their work together in some way to go faster? I think that is the only way forward, Jim. You know, the, the fact is the, the planet is facing so many challenges. There just is not enough money to do all the research we want to do. We cannot afford to have duplication. We do not have the luxury of building infrastructures that somebody else has already set up. So we have to come together. And it, that, of course, requires great leadership. It requires focus. Um, it requires humility as well. I think as organizations, we have to be honest and humble about our strengths and our weaknesses. Because then once you know what your weaknesses are, 
you can go out and identify organizations or individuals who can fill in those gaps because that's what makes for an effective team, et cetera. I think that's the only way forward. To, to crack these big problems, we are going to have to work together. And Jim, I, I say to many people, I spend my life breaking down barriers. You know, I break, I, I break down barriers between departments, divisions, but equally we need to break down barriers with industry, with government, with regulators, with funders, and importantly, with other countries. You know, that, you know, just imagine, I mean, sort of in many areas, you know, even if, even in the pandemic, did we as countries really work together to come up with new vaccines or new treatments? I'm not sure we did. So I have a final question for you. We could easily sit here and talk for hours. I mean, this is fascinating and it's rare that we get an opportunity to pick the brain of someone that's, I, I think, so smart, but also you said a uh, keyword, hu- hu- uh, humble, right? The humility piece. And I think that's one of the things we've lacked in a lot of different areas. But one question we like to ask guests, sometimes I think it's meaningful. This will be really meaningful. If you had one wish, whether that's for Oxford, yourself, the universe, what would that wish be and why? In healthcare, the thing that I find really worrying at the moment is mental health. You know, it was a massive issue before the pandemic. It's an even bigger issue after the pandemic. I think the traditional way of pharmaceutical drug discovery has not delivered. And we need to come up with new ways. And I'm hopeful that sort of AI machine learning, large data sets, new technologies, new divisive, non-invasive technologies, I think those could be the way forward. That's one thing. But you know, I said to I have got I've got two kids and um We were having lunch together a few weeks ago, and I said to them, I said, look, in 50 years' time, I'll be gone, but you guys are going to have to pick up the pieces of this mess. And I do worry about the climate emergency. You know, when I see what's happening across the planet with floods and fires and hot temperatures or erratic temperatures, et cetera, you know, this planet is changing rapidly. And the consequences of that climate change there are going to be massive health implications. And it was somebody said, and of course it's so obvious, but I hadn't really thought of it. They said that in India, there are farmers who, you know, because of the droughts, they lose all their crop and increasing numbers are committing suicide. Now, of course, you know, you can understand it, but I just hadn't thought of it. And, but this is happening already. And um, yeah, I mean, the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life is my grandson, I have to say. I mean, I love my kids, but it's amazing how much love you feel for your grandson or grandchild. And that's been a revelation to me in the past year. And I, I often think, I mean, how, how, how much has this planet changed in the past 20 years? It's incredible. And that pace of change is just getting faster and faster and faster. And so we have to help each other make this planet better and the lives of people better. And sometimes, unfortunately, making money slows things down. So sometimes we need to try and forget that agenda. And I think that's what this university did in the pandemic. Well, that's a perfect way to end it. Thank you for a very sober but very important PSA. And I love the bringing it around to your grandson because I think... When it's personal, uh, it's meaningful and 
hopefully gets us to take action. So Chaz, thank you so much for your time. Jim, thank you for joining me. And uh, hopefully the listeners are appreciative of all of the wisdom and background uh, and insight you brought to our conversation today, Chaz. Importantly, Aaron, Jim, come to Oxford. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it when I was there and I loved my dorm room. It was great. Um, I can't wait to get back. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.